Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This podcast is made possible thanks to Black Ballad's membership community. To find out how to join our community of professionally ambitious, socially conscious and culturally curious Black women, visit the link in our show notes. to the final episode of the second season of Black Ballad Presents The Survival Guide. I really hope you've enjoyed everything so far and found it helpful wherever you are on your parenting journey. This episode is extra special because we have a conversation between Toby, co-founder and CEO of Black Ballad, and Laura Henry Elaine, MBE. Laura is a leading, award-winning expert in early years education and children's media, both in the UK and internationally. She has worked with babies and children under seven for three decades and is also the creator and associate producer of Jojo and Grand Grand, the beloved CBB show that is a fixture in households across the world. And also, she's the author of My Skin, Your Skin, a book written to empower children around conversations about race. Toby and Laura discuss Laura's groundbreaking work, the realities of working motherhood and mum guilt, advocating for neurodiverse children, and so much more. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation. The Survival Guide is about, you know, black motherhood in Britain and, you know, you're a mum of two grown-up boys now, so this is going to be a really interesting conversation. And where better to start than the beginning? When did you first become a mother? I was age 25 when I had my son, Ryan. So that was the 90s. Yes. Um, what was it like being a 25-year-old black woman, uh, black mother in the 90s? How was that experience? And Looking at mothers now, um, how different do you think it was and how do you think things have changed? That's a great question because I think there's all... It, I felt as if I was rowing in the boat by myself, although I had my mum because I was at home still for a part up until I think Ryan was about nine months. So I had that, you know, I had my siblings, other family members, but there weren't that as much information about being a mother you know one went to the antenatal classes you did what you did but because I think I worked in early years 
and I trained initially as a nursery nurse where we covered um, child development, labour, pregnancy, all of those things. So I had an understanding, so I had a, a window of what to expect, but still I found it very, very scary and frightening. And I had a very difficult labour with both of my boys, actually. It was very, very difficult. And Ryan was born von Tuse, and you know you hear all the stories now about, you know, black women, pregnancy, labour and I can identify with that because I remember this midwife shouting at me saying to me to go and sit down I was in pain I was walking around you know the ward and she just said to me go and sit down and I was just like oh my goodness me so all of those things that you know we're hearing now that's out in the open and thank goodness we've got social media for women to to share their stories so I think there wasn't enough support when I was um, 25, but I had the practical and emotional support from, you know, my family, my partner, and thank goodness I was actually still at home. And I remember um, my son Ryan, he's born on the 20th of December, and we had to stay in because, I think it was because he was born Ventus, and I think it was two or three days, so it was just before Christmas. So I came home the 23rd of December, and I remember that first night and I was just so scared, just yeah. thinking. Yeah. And I think many first time mothers can identify yeah. this and mindful, you know, I'm living in the same house as my mum. I still had that feeling of you're on your own now, <laughs> you know, and it's just I kept on watching him thinking, you know, come on, Laura, you've worked with babies. And it was just, what do I do? You know, I knew, and I started to, it, you know, I don't want to get emotional. I was breastfeeding Ryan and the, I had the most, I had an infection and it was just the most horrendous time. And, you know, my sister, um, at that point, she was a sick child nurse. She went on to do health visiting. So obviously I could lean into my sister for advice. You know, I was lucky to have that, but I know a lot of um, first-time mums don't. So I do remember that feeling, as it's it's all coming back to me now, <laughs> of feeling helpless. What do would would what do I do? And eventually, I think it took me quite a few months to get into the swing of things. I remember I wasn't even able to leave the house and to think, oh my goodness me. It's three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm supposed to be going to the shop, right? And then I remember when I had my second one four years later, the routine was sorted. <laughs> How did you find the um, jump from one to two? It's a conversation that I've definitely had more in recent times, but how did you find that jump of having one son to having two sons? I felt initially because I did have the traumatic birth and, and to be honest I wasn't going to go again I was going to be the one and done right <laughs> that's what that's what it was um for me but then I'm one of six and there's literally 80 months difference between us all my mum always wanted six children she always wanted us back to back and back to back she did <laughs> literally some of us are under 18 months difference so it's just the respect I've got for my mum, you know, it's just unbelievable. And I remember my mum always saying to me, you can't just have, you know, etc. one child. 
And then she kept on, you know, there was this thing, the age gap, and it was going on and on. And then I went back to university and then I just thought, I've got to do, to have another, another child. And then my mum always, because you know what mums are like, they always have to come in with their side comment. <laughs> and she said to me, to be, you know, see, I told you, Laura, the best thing you need to have children back to back, and then you're tired and you're crying one time. <laughs> and I said, and I, to me. yeah, because obviously you've got that quite that short age. So did my sister. My sister's got three, and she's they're under two year gap between all of her three. Now her children are in their twenty. Her, her children are in their twenties. But I, I always laugh at that comment. And I do remember my mum saying that. And also to remember once getting really excited about, you know, rewinding it back to my first child. And my mum saying to me, um, you know what it's like, you look through all the books, you get all the stuff and you think, right, I'm 28 weeks pregnant. This is what the baby looks like inside of me. And I think I remember showing it to her. And, you know, my mum just sort of like looked at me and she said, well, you won't be that excited when the two eyes are shining at you at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, you know, that tiredness, I know that you could probably identify it because you've still got, you know, your young one, Toby, there. But it is, it's like <laughs> that level of... <laughs> I say that it's an indescribable tiredness that you experience when you're pregnant and then when they're newborn in the night you cannot put it into words how tired you are and I guess you know you said you was living at home for the first you know nine months with your first son how important was it to have that village of support around you um during those times oh my god it was 100% it, it was needed and I think if we go back to, you know, historically in, uh, you know, the different communities that we have, Caribbean communities, the different, you know, countries within Africa, in the Indian communities, it's like that the support that women get in pregnancy and thereafter, I think it's something that, um, you know, should there be a conversation that we need to go get back to that? And I think especially now when a lot of, families move away so you have more nuclear families and when I moved from West London to South London I didn't know anybody at the time so I lost all of that community all of those family members and friends who I could lean into and to say you know I'm really tired today can you take mine because I when I moved into South London from West London I was eight months pregnant, although I did go back to St. Mary's to have Rowan. And when I bought, it was just, you know, then my husband, he was going out to work at the time. I was there by myself with both of them, you know, trying. So I, I actually, when I compare the support I had with number one to number two, but by then I sussed it out and I just got into a little bit of a, of a rhythm and a, a flow of the day and at the weekends I used to go down to my mum's for the weekend <laughs> it, it you know what it, it is really I mean with my daughter I had a you know she's born in early April in 2020 so that was right at the beginning of the lockdown and we had no support and that was so much harder but with my son um my mother-in-law stayed for two weeks and it's just so there was I just felt different like, I just felt different. I felt like, you know, because also, you know, your partner's also tired, you're sharing the load, and it just felt 
a lot lighter motherhood the second time I think having that support and I think also I was saying to my husband going to my in-laws every weekend when that when 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 restrictions were eased with my daughter I think actually saved me um it saved me in terms of getting out of the house looking forward having some adult company um and I think people you know that you learn to appreciate adult company a lot more when you're a new parent, which is um, which is something I'm sure you know you're talking about. But I think something that all of us can relate to. Um, and speaking of adults, I'd love to talk about the mother figures in your life and the women that have influenced you. And I know it's something that we spoke about before. Um, but obviously this will then link to you know some of the work that you're best known for, which is Jojo and Grand Grand. Um. Besides your mum, who have been the mother figures in your life that have just been a vital support system? And and beyond, after answering that, I, why do you think black communities rely so much more on multiple mother figures and having that village around us when we're raising children? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I'm straight away going to go into my grandmother. You know, that is it just stands without reason and she actually went back to St Lucia when I was little but she was there emotionally because you know because she'd write send letters etc so I would say million percent my mum my grandmother I we had aunts as well like my mum's sisters my mum's first cousin and my mum was very fortunate just as a little sideline here but I think it's relevant to the conversation when my mum was raised in St Lucia, she lived with her grandparents, um, her mum, her aunt, and other cousins in the house. So my mum's first cousins are like her siblings, because there's a, an eight-year gap between my mum and her sister. So my mum probably always felt like an under... That's why she probably wanted six children, right? <laughs> and so for them, when I always used to see them together, how tight they were... And as I said to you, I'm working on something now. So I'm literally, I'm interviewing my mum. I'm asking her these questions. Some of it I know. And to hear the stories about how tight they were, the the support, the network. My mum was telling me that, you know, for instance, on Good Friday, one of the fishermen used to bring them fish and, you know, not he never used to charge them. And then equally, my grandmother, because she was a dressmaker, she did things for them. And my mum was shared with me the other day when somebody died, my gran would make the, the burial suit and there'd be no charge to that. So there was a lot more of community living. And I just feel that as in, in the black community, it's naturally there, it's not forced. And you would listen, so say for example, I would listen to to my aunts, you know, as if they were a mother, if they, they told me off, I'm being told off, I'd listen. <laughs> if they'd give me advice, you'd, you'd listen to them. You would have that, you know, that level of respect, which I feel, um, I don't know whether or not, are, are we losing that a, a little bit now? Because I know with my family, we're quite, you know, tight, myself and, and my siblings, we have a, a WhatsApp group. <laughs> um, I'm in a WhatsApp group with my children's dad, although we're divorced, we're still quite close as a family. And family is at the core of everything that I do. And that's why I think I do a lot of community work because it, it's in my, my DNA to, to help and support 
others. I mentor as well a lot of young people, some officially, some unofficially. And I just thought that's just the way we are because you always just help each other out, you know? What advice would you give to anyone that's listening? Because black mums that are listening, that make up the majority of listeners of this podcast, you know, some of them don't have their families here because, you know, their families might be back home. And then also, you know, when you think about house prices, house prices, sorry, we can't be near our families. We can't buy near our families. So maybe we buy, you know, somewhere outwards or we rent somewhere else that's a little bit cheaper. What advice would you give to them about forming new communities um, when, they've had, when they're having children and, and, and how important is it? I think it is super important. And I developed the community when I moved south because of when my son went to nursery, then on to school. So I do have a bulk of my friends now are in, are in South London. And I think it's just finding out the different groups that are there, maybe to be doing a bit of sucking and seeing in terms of the, the parent-toddler groups. Um, you know, I know sometimes they can be a bit clicky and if it's not for you, you know, you can step away from that. But just find what I would say your what feeds your soul if you feel comfortable somewhere. Um, or then equally to set up your own little your own network of groups, because I know some of them can be very, you know, very white and middle class groups and so it could be that you set up a, another group of like-minded mums, put a message out there. I know on, on Facebook, we have a number of different local groups. There's a, a parent one and there's just a, a generic local group just to say, you know, some, some parents want to meet and have a coffee, etc., or just go to different ones. And then equally too, there are a lot of things that are online where you don't physically um meet other mums that you could just generally have a chat and reach out and I think the other point to make there is about mothers and parents and dads as well needing support with their mental health because I think that's a big thing because that has an impact as well on the black community which we do need to talk have conversations about how we have conversations about our well-being and our emotional, spiritual health, where do we lean out to? Where are the black counsellors, the black therapists, yeah. all of these that, you know, that understand us as a, as a community? We're talking about families and communities, and I know your grandmother is one of the most important figures in your life, so much so that she influenced Jojo and Grand Grand. Um, I miss Jojo and Grand Grand. New episodes. Are we going to get an exclusive on Black Ballad? When are new episodes coming out? I'd love, I'd love for us to break it. When it, when is it coming out? It's coming soon. I cannot give you the date, but there is forty-four new episodes over the next two years. So parents have probably watched the banana um, bread episode a thousand times, but we do have new episodes and they're really, I mean, they're just uh, amazing. I think the, the writers, the team at CBB's A Production, everybody that's involved on the show just brings 100% themselves. And so either it's spring, so spring is now, so it should be happening. <laughs> Let's delve into Jojo and Grand Grand. Yeah, how did it come about in terms of the idea, the influences from your personal life and getting it commissioned? I'd, I'd love to delve into that before we go any further about the show. 
Yeah, okay. So basically my my background is um so I worked in education for years and the last 16 years I've worked freelance as a consultant globally. So that's with schools, brands, TV, media, etc. And then I was working with a particular production company. So sometimes it's advising you know, would a three-year-old say this? Would a four-year-old say this? Would this be right for a family, etc.? And um, then on one particular day, the BBC was there, and I said I had an idea. <laughs> but even before that, because my grand actually, in a few weeks' time, it's fourteen years that she passed away, and I was griefed, as you could imagine. I mean, I cancelled work for about a month because we flew out to Saint Lucia. And then I was remembering trying to be positive about all the things that she had shared with me. Because the last time I saw her was on her 101st birthday. Me and my, we flew out there. And I think I sort of knew then a few months after that she died. And when she was 101, her long-term memory was sharp, but not the short-term. And family and friends were there when she was holding court. And she said, oh, you know, this is my Laura when she was little because at that time we moved from Paddington to Notting Hill, very near Grenfell. So she used to come on a Saturday with bags of sweets, crisps and cakes for us. And out of the six of us, she said I was the only one at the window getting really excited, jumping up and down saying, Mama's coming, Mama's coming, because in the St. Lucian Creole we call Mama the grandmother. And she said I just used to get really excited. And other stories about when I was little, I'd always be sort of like by her side and I just think she probably just had a little glint in her eye for me, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And she would always yeah. say to people, this is my law, this is my law, etc. Then I just thought, oh, you know, I used to work as being, you know, as a teacher, is, it, is there something here around some stories? So then I wrote the books first, All in a Week and Twelve and a Half Days to Christmas then had a communication with the CBeebies team, went all the way up to Manchester, um, emailed them some documents, and they said initially, the computer came back and said no. <laughs> and then about six or seven months after, you know what it's like when you're doing a search for emails, you know, just to track something back, it came up in a search. And I was thinking, no wonder they said no, I sent the wrong document. <laughs> so I went back again and they had a turnaround and then the lovely Ross Atilia, um, I met her at BBC White City, she loved it. And then I think it was a no a couple of times after that. And then finally, Ross was super passionate about it. She kept on pushing it. Um, she shaped it quite a lot to get it to be commissioned. And then I think about four years ago, we got commissioned and the first episode aired two years ago. So, yeah. So one of the things I always say I was doing some mentoring work um, on Friday. You know, with Dapo, he's got the book Look Up. So yeah. he and I were yeah, both yeah, doing some, yeah. with some new um, with perspective, with emerging writers. And I always, one of the things I always say is to never give up. If you've got an idea whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's an idea for a TV series, just keep on going because there's going to be somebody one day, either a publisher, an editor in TV or in the land of publishing, that's going to say, yes, this is the 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 idea that we need either in book or, or on the screen. I am a huge fan of JJ and Grand Grand. It is one of it was one it was a, probably the very first show that my daughter really was 
fixated with, obsessed with. I think she called it the TV was Jojo, like, and you know, we had to get the books. And I think the thing that I love about it is that it shows the joy between generations. And I and I loved I loved that. And I have to thank you for that because I think so often um shows that you know focus blackness or have black characters you know they get pushed into a direction where they don't always show the joy and i i'm so grateful that it's such a joyous show so i really just wanted to say that on the podcast but i also wanted to ask you know it's the first you know animated tv show in britain that centers a black family you know in two years ago that's 2020 you know when you think about that it's kind of like it's great you're the first it's great you're pioneering but at the same time it's like oh my god it's taking all that time did you feel that pressure that this has to do well because you know we do know that sometimes when things by us don't do as well it closes the door for other creators up and coming behind us did you feel pressure for the show to do well in in that sense yeah, I think, thank you for those compliments. And I'm sure the, the, the wider team will, of you know, really appreciate that. I think, um, didn't, didn't know at the time. So when I was pitching the show initially, you know, six, seven years ago, even when I think it was just about went live two years, we didn't know it was the first. You know, really? I kid you not, honestly, until I think somebody mentioned it. And I said, maybe correct, because obviously there's been black children in tv you know from back in the day but not a sole hundred percent black british family um and i think kudos to to the team in terms of making it work and i think you're right in saying that and when conversations that i had with the team initially i thinking about my grandmother i kept on saying we need to show the love because she was all about, she used to say that to me all the time, you've got to love your family, even if it's a family member you've never met. And my grand used to say to me, that person's your relative, and my mum would be, no, they're not our relative, but my, my grand would just say they are. And that's the type of person she was about making sure, treating everybody, you know, with your, I don't even want to get emotional. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh, we, 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 I didn't mean to make you emotional. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just looking at her now. I've got a couple of pictures. She would always be saying about your family, about making sure, giving people things. I remember once when I was visiting her and in her her yard, she had a breadfruit tree. And she made me take two of them down and then marched me through the, the village to her friend's house who had her legs amputated. And then my grand would say, no, I've got to go and see her. I've got to go and see Ma Daniels to bring her these breadfruit. And and she was just always, and I think that's my wine. I've actually got it on my board for when I'm writing to remind me anything that I do with my consultancy. And it's to inspire families around the world so that they can develop loving, meaningful and lasting relationships. So that's my wine in anything I do. So... That's why at the end, the CBB's team had added in, I love you, Grand Grand, I love you, Jojo. Yeah. And the love and the joy, as you so rightly said, is woven right the way. I mean, I get messages from people in America, South Africa and Canada. They slide into my DMs. I mean, you know, I get letters <laughs> and emails with people saying, you know, you just don't know. This show is amazing. And I think not just, yes. it's super important also to 
for white children to see the joy and the love that we have in black families because obviously what they normally see is stereotypical images so for me i'm super proud that you know we can see this we can see ourselves on tv and for other people to see us and to say well actually we just do this the same things and and hopefully this is many other more tv shows i mean i'm working on on another one another idea for a tv show and fingers crossed that will come through but it's just beforehand we always used to lean into our american black brothers and sisters in the states even in children's books so i think now we have this we have so many talented people who work within the industry that they need to be given a seat at the table, you know, and that's what I'm all about is about bringing in new talent coming through because they are there at, when people say, okay, you know, we don't, there's no, we couldn't find this black person or that black person to do X, Y, and Z, but we just need to cast our nets a lot wider because they are there. They, they're there. I don't think there's any excuse because there's so much talent that is coming through that's there already not even emerging that's there already in the black community right yeah i mean i saw um i, I can't remember what episode it was but i was the credits of jojo and grand grand came up and i think someone called shay wrote an episode or was, yes yeah, yeah and shay. obviously the last name is yoruba and i was like ah and you know i i was like oh my god so there's a nigerian writer and a yoruba writer and it just shows you that you know you're right the talent is there and i think it's essential in making sure the talent is present and in the room when creating shows for children because the I, I can't express enough the effect and the importance of Jojo and Grand Grand for my children, hearing British accents and seeing, you know, if they're watching an American show, they're not going to see the post office in the way that you see it in Jojo and Grand Grand. They're not going to see, you know, the red bus that, you know, is very London centric, but it's very iconic to this country. And I think it's so important. And I also wanted to ask, how how did you ensure that you know it's the details in jojo and grand grand that i love you know when the hair episode is um done you know the hairdresser and the braiding and the way it was animated was so accurate and then you know the solution heritage that comes through with the you know the kalalu soup and you know when they in the final episode of the winter series when they go for you know hot chocolate and they don't call it hot chocolate was it difficult to maintain those details did you have to get really picky or did people just go with it because that's what you wanted how how, how was that in terms of getting that across in the show kudos to the team so you've got tom cousins who's the series producer and from day dot when tom came on board you know tom always used to ask me questions meetings and a productions and cross-referencing back to the hair episode, they used a, a black hairdresser and her name is Camilla Wallace. And she's based, so she um, fed back in terms of the hair, the braid, and as you could see, the wrist action, it was all there. <laughs> it was, it was so accurate. It was so accurate. Exactly. And then I think the live action on that, when you see the little girl and the little boy go into the barbers and the hairdressers, and we also to lean into where's needed different um, cultural as aspects. So there's a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion with the St. Lucian High Commissioner, the St. Lucian Tourism Authority. So where, so similarly, if we need to have, there's an episode, for instance, about the dinosaurs in series one, 
there would be some leaning to in terms of an expert in that and and that's what i think really makes the the the, the show with regards to having that second and third eye on it is it actually correct and you're so rightly saying instant usually we don't call it hot chocolate we call it coca tea and um, because also to the way that it's made and that's really and that's when i talk about the it being authentic the nuances so it's not just black on the screen we it's we delve deep into it and bring in all of those um cultural reference points with the hair with the food um, and I think within series two and three, that's going to be carried right the way through as well. I'm so excited. Um, will series two and three, will they be following the seasons um, sort of structure that you have? And yes. why, why did you go with that season structure rather than just being like series one, two, three, four? Because it's, it's very interesting the way it's kind of presented in that yeah, way. Yeah, because initially... Um, when the series, I mean, I had always pitched it as Jojo and Grand Grand because that's what the books are called. And coincidentally, my middle name is Josephine, hence Jojo. <laughs> so um, it was, it changed. So when it was commissioned, it was commissioned to It's About Time or All About Time. I can't remember, but time was in the, the title. And when I think as we got through production, we changed it back to um Jojo and Grangran. So because it was linked to time, the discussion was to break it down into seasons because of um the seasonal changes linking into time, etc. It's really clever and it's um it just makes the show stand out, I think, as well, in, yes, a, in a way. Yeah. It, it just it's just it's just a different reference point, I think, for a children's show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Um, you know, you are, you know, you're an author, you know, you are, you know, you're writing TV shows, you know, I looked on your site and I've seen some updated brands that you've worked with. So I saw Ladybird, Macmillan, you know, I saw Barclays on there. You were, you know, you're a consultant, you know, you're an early year specialist. 
It's a lot. I mean, what 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 do you call yourself in terms of your career? And, and let's get into being a working mum. Like, how how have you managed to, you know, stay passionate about children all these years and through all the things that you've done in your career? I think juggling, juggling, juggling. <laughs> but the balls drop. I must. I have to hasten to to add and the level of tiredness. And equally too, even though my sons are in their twenties now. My eldest son's autistic, so I still have a lot of, like last week I had a two hour meeting review. So literally I still have to, although he lives um, semi-independently, 15 minutes up the road, I still have to have a lot of input. So I'm not done, quote unquote, <laughs> in terms of my, but ne you're never done, so to speak. But I think for me, what I will class myself now is, is that I'm a storyteller producer and speaker because the storytelling because somebody asked me the other day when did you want to become an author and I said that's interesting I think I've always been a storyteller and that's leaning back into my um, culture because you know they always told stories my mum and her family so the storytelling um, goes into TV work, it goes into writing books, it goes into when I'm doing keynote speeches because I can just freestyle talking about anything. As you can see, I'm a talker. <laughs> we love it. Although Don't I was shy, I was shy. So my default, I can go back to being shy because I was shy as a, as a little girl and I can sometimes be that way depending on where I am. But I think as a, the advice that I would give to parents listen to this, especially with if you've got little ones is i know it sounds like a cliche you have to take care of number one first and i think which i'm still learning to do i'm still not there yet i hasten to add sometimes you just got to say no to things and you have to be kind to yourself so how i work i have a very quirky way of doing things <laughs> So during the week, I'm literally on it. I'm all over. This week, I'm quite busy because it's um, World Book Day. So last week, I've been out. This week, ne the next few weeks, really super busy. So if I'm not speaking or doing an event on a Saturday, I tend to start winding down. And then on a Sunday, I have like 100% PJ day. I have to have a day what I call having no human contact. <laughs> and so the only person I would tend to speak to is I'd call my mum and I have to recharge my batteries. And it's about, you know, I have to, over the last few years, practice what I preach. So where I'm very good at telling others to take care of themselves. <laughs> over the last few years, I've then now, I've, I, I, I do that. And that's why people say to me, oh my goodness me, Laura, do you sleep? And I say, yes, I do, thank you. <laughs> But therefore, then I have to be super organised. I have to have a things to do list, notebook, my phone. I use to write things down, and just trying to to juggle it and knowing when I can't do something because it's going to push me. To, like last week, Friday, I um I was in a school, so I was in Islington, came back, did a Zoom thing, and then I was meant to go back into London again. Um, at a cocktails award thing and I just thought you know what time I get there I'm only going to be there for about 45 minutes and it's going to be done no can't can't go and it's things like that that I'm being more kind to say well I can't split myself you know because you see so many people have 
you know, the, the burnout, I call it. And the work's always going to be there. <laughs> the work is always going to be there, that is true. But you've had a long career and, you know, it seems like you have constantly worked your career from the very beginning. Were you this kind to yourself when your children were little? And I guess the question is, what did it mean to have it all as a working mum when your kids were younger? And, and do you think you, you had it all? No, I don't think so, because I think mistakes were made. I was even saying to my son the other day, because he mislaid some keys, and I just said to him, you know, don't worry about it. He found them in the end, and I laughed, and I said, I remember once I came out of my car, and I was eating a banana, and I threw the banana skin into a bin with my keys, my car keys, house keys, yeah. Time I came back, guess what? The bin had been emptied that's because you're doing too many things yeah and I've got many other stories like that as a case of trying juggling too much to your detriment so that's when I you know we there is always that conversation isn't there I think especially we have as as women can we have it all mm. and I think this is me talking personally, so don't at me, listeners. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> I, the community is so kind. They will not, I know. I'm sure you I, I personally, I, I, I think sometimes you, you have to give because there have been times when I think, when I look back, and I can look back and I think, I tried to be, I was there physically always for my boys. You know, all the plays, the school plays, I even had time to go on all the outings in schools. I was a governor. Um, all of those types of things but I think now when I reflect back if I'm being vulnerable and if I'm being honest to mums coming through I don't think I was probably always there emotionally and spiritually for my children okay. yeah. you can be yeah. there physically but was you was I therefore on the phone was I always on my laptop was I always saying oh yeah we'll go to nanny's today but I'll bring my laptop with me <laughs> I, so I, I'm I'm guilty of that now to be exactly and I think that's the thing if I'm I am being I'm not going to sugarcoat it I'm not that is for me but at the time I didn't see it that way <laughs> I was thinking I'm here with my boys isn't it fortunate the way that I work that I can be around in the holidays but you know we can go on all these lovely holidays but emotionally and spiritually I would I wouldn't say Yes, I was, obviously, some of the time, but not always. And that's, I think, conversations. And that's the importance, again, of having your support network. So you can talk to your, you know, your biological sisters, your non-biological sisters about these matters. That have, And I think now, to be one of the beauties, I think, now what we have is we have language. We can have these discussions. Whereas before, when I was raising, we weren't able to talk about this. We can talk about mental health. We can talk about people being depressed. We can talk about people being suicidal. We can talk about holding your hands up as a mum and saying, I can't cope at the moment. Mm. And not being not feeling ashamed about it. I would say you're, you're, it's a positive thing to say, can't cope at this present moment in time because you're reaching out 
to that to your community probably my final question about being a working mum, and, and i'm gonna be honest this is for me asking you for advice i think one of the things i struggle with a lot of the time is mum guilt and i and i was talking to a friend about it and i was telling her how i get over it is that for me it's like i'm providing for my kids i i want to give i want to give them the option that if they want to go to private school or if they want swimming lessons or if they you know my daughter's in ballet at the moment i don't want to have to say no to them because i can't financially afford it like i'm working so hard to give them the best financial start um did you ever experience mum guilt or parent guilt and how did you get over it because it is the thing that i think probably hinders my mothering experience the most like did you experience that and how did you navigate it i think i did all the time to some of the times for instance i remember my boys went to scouts and it's a day it was a non-scouts uniform day and i completely forgot and they turned up <laughs> And things like that, forgetting things, you know, that they needed to, although I try to, because I'm dyslexic, so I have to keep lists, but sometimes, you know, we're only human. And yes, I did feel that mum guilt. And I think, sometimes, I think when I'm reflecting on this now, I think I probably should have had conversations with my children about it in an age, stage and ability manner to say that I've got to, to work. And in those days, I used to go away, you know, because I used to travel, not just in the UK, I go overseas and I'm gone sometimes 10 days at a time. I think, and that's why I think in terms of then you overcompensate in terms of what you was just saying. So you have the holidays, you have the, the nice gifts, you have, you know, going out to restaurants and you have the nice birthday parties and things like that, which is obviously the... Um, the visual side of showing that your success to them this is the reason why mummy's able to uh, mummy has to work so to speak as a result of that and then the, the other thing for me is which is we need to probably do another uh, podcast on this is i got divorced as well part way through my children's childhood so there's that other layer of guilt um to be it as another point of discussion then you go into another layer of overcompensating <laughs> so you know it is it's um it's an interesting one but i think you know thank goodness for you guys now at blackwell for having these conversations where women are able you know because actually now i do feel quite vulnerable sharing this with you. So do I actually? Yeah. I feel like, oh my god, everyone's gonna know that I've got mum guilt and that I'm doing these things and telling you know. I, yeah, like yeah, I, I get. It. But hopefully, the listeners listening to this, to me, I think will be able to identify, to be able to share this, and with me sharing that when I share with people openly, I'm um, I'm dyslexic. When I share with people, I've got an autistic son because we need to talk about how being black with a disability that's another podcast for another day right and i think it's um it's important and i think the the general thing was especially in my my grandmother and my parents today was don't tell people your business <laughs> so i think now because it's linked to shame they always used to you know my mum would say oh don't bring shame on the family that's shameful that term about being that shame term which I think has prevented us from speaking, which has a link back to, to mental health. And I think that's the reason why it is important now 
that we we have a voice that we we talk about things that have an impact on us as a woman about being a black woman living in 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 trying to jump through all these hoops and hurdles and walls and things like that thank you so much for sharing um there's two things that you you mentioned i'd love to talk about you know briefly or whatever you feel comfortable with you know talking about your son who's autistic and you know neurodiverse I remember we spoke about it briefly before and you said that you were you had to be his voice what advice would you give to black parents um who are navigating especially education system with children that are neurodiverse because you know there is that thing of i think when children have learning difficulties you know black kids aren't given that same sort of I don't say benefit of the doubt, but I don't give them that sort of diagnosis. It's are they disruptive or are they, you know, like how 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 have you navigated that? And what are the lessons that you've learned that you'd love to share with another black parent? I think the first thing is I would say, know the system, know what your legal rights are. Because one of the things that they will try to do, quote unquote, the system is to firstly to say to you, there's no funding and a no. So don't take no for an answer. You know, we've got the, um, you know, Google. I know there are other search engines out there. <laughs> but oh, really, really? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but literally do your research. I'd be happy to share what I know. And my son wouldn't have got, I, I think because I worked in education, so I knew some of the things that were being told with me was a load of rubbish. And I had to literally fight tooth and nail for Ryan to get the support when he was in um because he wasn't identified officially till he was 21 so primary school secondary school he was under the Senko so they had him down as this black boy that was not I wasn't having any of it <laughs> so basically all the time having to go in and be his voice to speak for him to say well no well actually that's not right that's not right um writing letters and i because i know how to structure things and to argue in in a written form whether it was an email or was it was a letter and actually i was doing a search on it the other day and i felt i've kept everything with regards to to ryan even now as an adult with his the the pip which is the um, personal independent payment we were told no for that we went to panel the panel said why are you here at panel he should have been given this we just you know we can see your your son and it's all these things and and as much as possible um go back to your gp know what's available and i would say make sure you get your child officially diagnosed don't just swab them off with whether or not they're in a nursery or with still within the school system and the senko says oh no it's just okay we'll just sort of like still support your child make sure and that's the bit that they always say that there's not the funding to do and where possible try not to go down the private route because again things that i was told is that actually if you go down the private route for a for being diagnosed it's not taken that seriously really yes yeah so it's about making sure whether or not it's the health because my son was officially diagnosed in and i didn't even know this at the time in the Maudsley hospital 
they've got a specialist and autistic unit. I didn't know that. The Wolsey Hospital, you know, 20 minutes up the road from me. I didn't know this until somebody told me who worked in the Wolsey. Did you not know? I said, no, I didn't know. There's all of these different things to, you know, any of the listeners here, if your child, if you think your child is going to be on the spectrum, neurodiverse, there is a really good set at Cambridge University, a top research, I can't remember the the guy's surname that leads on that, the professor, the Maudsley, all of these different organisations. But I would say none of the charities had helped me. It was just me doing this by myself. And that's one of the things that saddens me is that there are a lot of parents who at that first hurdle, when somebody's told them no, that they just would accept that. And that's the thing that saddens me, that a lot of this information is not shared. Another thing I wanted to ask, actually, is I didn't know you was a school governor. What made you make that decision? And how important is it, I guess, for... You know, I've seen people on socials talk about this, that more black parents need to be school governors. Um, what was your thinking behind that? And, and, and what was your experience of doing that? Yes, I was a governor in my son's secondary school, a parent governor, so I was voted in by other parents. And I think, crucially, I think parents, if you've got the, the spare time um, to be a governor, and don't worry, even whatever job you, you work in, it doesn't matter, because if you're a parent governor, you, you can do any job. You're there as in your capacity as a parent, because they have foundation governors, etc. And if it's a um, if it's a, a Christian school, then they'd have like somebody I think from the diocese, if my memory serves me right. But I think if you can, if you've got the spare capacity, please, please, please consider being a governor because you find out about how the school operates. And even if you don't want to be a governor in your own children's school. Um, be a governor in another school because it part of those decisions are being made about children especially black children <laughs> and if you're there and especially if you're sitting on a panel if a child's being excluded and we know the stats around black children being excluded you can ask those questions you can talk about their behavior policy you can talk about you know, have the school community, have they done work on um, racism, anti-racism? What does that look like in practice? And I think it is, and also too, I think going in helping, because I, I was able, I was fortunate to do that because of the way that I worked, um, go on the school trips, going in, reading to children, just, I would say, having that ear to, and that watchful eyes to see what's actually going on because they're you know they're with your children for a big part of the day <laughs> you know and also to be part of if they have um you know like parent and teachers association and different things like that and I think that I mean I stepped down as a governor I think probably about over 10 years ago but I, I, it was a good experience. And I, when parents sometimes come to me and ask me questions about education, I always recommend where possible. And there is a call to action for more black governors as well. As I said, like social media, I've seen a lot of parents, black parents advocate to get more school governors, um, more black parents to be school governors. And I think it is something that's needed. Um, you mentioned anti-racism, and I think that's a great lead into your book. 
my skin, your skin. You know, before the podcast started, Jenny and I, I had an editorial telling you how much we loved it for our kids. Jenny's kids are um, eldest, is a little bit older than mine, so she's actually read it with her son, and, you know, I read it by myself. Um, congrats on the success of the book. I've been seeing, you know, Waterstones gave it 5 out of 5, Goodread gave it 4.5. I saw, I've been seeing you do, like, a lot of, you know, people inviting you in to speak about the book, and, you know, it seems to be doing such good work, and I'm so glad it's doing work now, and it, it kind of feels that, you know, after, you know, the Black Lives Matter resurgence in 2020, there felt like this massive sort of boom of, you know, people wanting to talk about blackness and it kind of, you know, stops. And it feels like this book is kind of having a life of its own and doing that work that needs to be done. So congratulations on all of that. How did the book come about and why did you feel that you needed to write it? Yeah, thank thank you for that feedback. Um, Around two years ago with Mattel, I co-wrote a guide um, hoping you to support, um, to raise an anti-racist child, children. And that was quite successful. It was downloaded quite a lot. I have to laugh because I never had a Barbie doll and here I am working with Mattel, right? (laughs) And um, so Emma and I co-wrote that, a colleague of mine. Um, Then I was doing some work with... I had done some work with Ladybird, the publisher, in terms of consultancy work. I, I wrote... One of the projects was I wrote a guide on how to support your children with reading, the importance of books, etc. And then the editor, Louis, she was contacting me for years. She said, no, you need to write a book for us and da-da-da-da-da, the best fit. And we kept on going backwards and forwards. And I think I shared the guide and she said, oh, there's something here probably about writing a book about being anti-racist, racism, etc. And then we had My Skin, Your Skin as the title, went backwards and forward how it was going to be shaped. And then we had, um, then we talked about adding empowerment because I thought that was super important as well about giving children um, a voice to speak out about racism and for children and to support children with their self-esteem, etc. And I, the book has done really well, not just for children. I've had adults say to me, it's a real starting point in their journey into this area because it's, you know, white parents have said, where do I start with all of this? And that's why I always say, well, actually, you know, as black parents, we don't get a choice because we have to have these conversations with our children. Sometimes when, unfortunately, they've experienced a racist incident at age three or four. I read the book when we got it and I read it before this interview just to, you know, for prep, Trying to be professional. Um, And what I was reminded of is I love the fact that there's some very open-ended questions for my children to ask questions or or any child that's, you know, reading the book. And I I say as a a parent, I so recommend this book um, for every parent. And the structure of it, as I said, is incredible. The open-ended question, the fact that there's a whole page dedicated to parents and getting started, because even, you know... You know, people expect me to be very confident in speaking about race with my children. But, you know, me and my husband have spoken about we're trying to get my daughter, you know, the joy of blackness right now. We're not having, you know, the harder... Because she's two, she can't have the harder conversations. But the book still seems to get the joy of being black. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that's very consistent in your work is that there are tough questions that need to be answered, but you seem to make sure there's always joy in your work and even the tougher areas. And I think that's incredible. 
yeah, how do you always manage to find the joy? And even in those tough subjects, you know, that you're writing about, how do you manage to maintain that joy? Yeah, I just think it's a natural thing because actually I do remember when I first did the first draft of this because my mum was with me this weekend and it was the August bank holiday. The years are just rolling into one now because of the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. August, August 2020. So we went down to Brighton. Mum, when she says, she always goes to bed super early. I give her my bedroom. She has all the mod cons there, so she's good, yeah. <laughs> so I slid into here into the office and I just started to write and it just started to come out. And every single page, there's something personal in this book, either personal or professional, that I had to, to go in there. So for me, I wanted that. So the joy, that page where we talk about you can be anything you want to be. Yeah, yeah. So the... That bit I put, I'm going to put you can be a ballet dancer because when I was working with children, we either had a visit of a, a ballet company or we went to see a show. So the next day, typical, you've got to do extension activity. So the children had to do some drawing and I said, oh, maybe I could be a ballet teacher. One of the children said to me, you can't be a ballerina because you're black. Yeah. No. This was over 30 years ago and this stuck with me. So that's why that went in there. So everything in there, when I went backwards and forward with the, the editors, it was it was a celebration and you're right in saying that. And we also too went backwards and forward with illustrators. And as you can see, another another one of your people. I did, I did, I was like I did and, clash. Yep. And she, and you, she actually just lives up the road from me and I'd seen her work before and it's just magical. And that was one of the reasons why I say to people, you know, it would, would have been very easy to have a white illustrator, but you needed to have, I was at, you have to have a black illustrator for a book because when they, from a spiritual point of view, they're going to get as they're drawing what in essence the book is uh what the book is about and then conversations we've had af after that about the book and um the illustrations i think really bring my words out alive and that's a comment that i've had quite a lot and um about how they look, how it is really super inclusive. And even though it says the book is from age four and up, I've had pe people say to me, oh, my two, I've read it with my two-year-old um, because they haven't read it in full, but they've looked at the pictures and they've just picked up on different bits. And that's for me. And I think, thank you for that compliment. I think I might have to add that about <laughs> I bring joy because for me then actually that's what it's all about as being a storyteller of being joyful and one of the things I, I did about a month ago was about myself I asked family friends colleagues and clients about what's the first thing that comes to mind when they think about myself when they think who am I who's Laura <laughs> And I even asked one of my primary school friends who I've known coming up to 50 years and it's consistent. So how I am in work and with my, I'm the same, I don't switch. So it was quite fascinating to see the things that were coming through. And I think probably joy must have been on there about bringing joy, um, bringing hope, because I do want people, yes, it is a difficult subject, the book, but I want children to still feel that there is hope, that 
that there is joy, that there is something positive, because my aim is, is that, you know, the next generation of, that we don't see yeah. this level of, and I know, Racism, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, like, I, I will say it a million times, and, I, and I'm so glad the book exists, and, you know, the success of it is phenomenal. I, I've had you for a long time, I've only got a few more questions, I promise you, and one of the, one of the questions I wanted to talk about is, how has your early years work influenced you as a parent? Um, because, you know, as you said, it, it's been essential. It's been like a foundation of all the work that you've done. But so how has, how has it actually affected and influenced you, your personal journey as a mum? Yeah, I think it has been there, but sometimes, not all the time, because number one, I always say I'm a parent. The parent bit comes first before my my job. But I think it was always, you know, always useful to know about child development. And, you know, and I think picking up that with my Ryan from an early age, when he was about a year, that something wasn't quite right. And that I think was having that understanding as child development. But therefore then you know, a parent that may not have worked in early years or in education would have probably, you know, picked that up. Um, and then knowing, I think, especially coming back to the, the question at the point that I made earlier around supporting my son, it has been useful knowing the language to use when I am battling the the system and knowing where I need to go to to cross-reference legislation so that's been useful. But I think all in all, I would say I'm a parent first. And the, the thing I, I did actually as a funny story is when I was going back, I had quite, because I used to work for Camden, the first bit of maternity leave. And back then we had a long bit of maternity leave. Camden was one of the really good ones. And because I had annual leave as well, it was literally, I had about 10 months off work. So all this time I'm dilly-dallying, sort of like thinking, yeah, I'm really enjoying maternity leave. Ryan was born in the winter, in the summer, I'm out and about. It's 1994, jungle music has come out. I'm having a good time. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not thinking about going back to work. So when the time come, I think I must have probably got a letter because you didn't have emails in those days. I'm thinking, beep, beep, I've got to go back to work soon. <laughs> I haven't sorted childcare out, yeah? And I remember someone saying to me, but Laura, you work in early years. You should have had this sorted from morning, right? And I didn't do, and that just showed to me, well, actually, I'm just being a parent now, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's that was just like a little story that I do remember. And I... <laughs> And thinking, I'm going back to work in two weeks' time. I haven't even sorted childcare yet. Because in my head, I didn't want to go back. So maybe that was the reason why as Put well. Yeah. <laughs> I could talk to you forever, honestly. Yeah. I could. But to end this, I think it's right that we end where we started in terms of your personal motherhood journey. So I've got a few more questions about that. And I think, how has your parenting style changed? You know, Because your, your boys are in their 20s now. So you've seen... You've seen newborn, toddler, child, teenager, 20-year-old men. Um, and, you know, I've said to you before, you know, I've, I've, I'm trying to hope to God that I see parenting from going from manager to mentor. And I'm, I, that's what I'm really, in my mind, hoping that I'm going to do. I'm hoping, I'm praying I'm going to do that for my kids. Um, how has your parenting style had to change for your boys as they've grown from boys to men? I think you hit the nail on the head, on the head there. It is from manager to to mentor. 
it is this thing about um, easing in. So it is about suggesting having conversations. Oh, I was thinking, <laughs> um, oh, it might be a good idea if, yeah? Um, what was you thinking about that? So it is about helping them within that. Does it get easier, actually? That's one thing I want to say. Does parenting get easier as they get older? Do you think it gets easier? No, I think there are different stages of parenting in terms of, I think you worry more. So say for my youngest, the 24-year-old, he was away for about five years. He did a degree, then he did a master's, and he came back home. So when he's out now, I can't rest until he gets back. <laughs> yeah, and it's that type of, that worry that you have. And I always remember then my mum when I was going out and you don't appreciate it. But then now I see myself doing it to think I can sometimes fall asleep in for 10 minutes. But until I hear the key going through the door, then I can relax now. <laughs> My mum still, I'm 32, my mum is like, can you come when you get home, please? Can, and I'm yeah, like, exactly. we're in a car, we're fine, she doesn't know, can you just come when you get home? So yeah, okay, it does, the worry doesn't stop then. I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And I think at the end, that's why I think the thing about the manager, because you know where they are. So whether or not it's dropping them to football, it's swimming, you're collecting them from school. So obviously you still have concerns and worries about, you know, education, about their social life, who they're hanging around with in secondary school. That's a worry raising, you know, black boys. It, it, it's a real, it's a real worry. But then it switches when they get older that you do get cerned and it's like, you know, have you eaten enough? <laughs> have you the time? And then with me also to having a, a my oldest a child with a disability. That's just another additional layer as well. And I feel honoured to parent a child, actually, I should add, that's got, has a disability. I'm quite honoured to be here, uh, uh, his mum. I definitely think, you know, what you shared is so important. And I'm hoping that we can have more, in, more inclusive uh, conversations around parenting, especially for black parents. Um, my final question I have for you is, what has been the most joyous moment of motherhood for you? I would say straight away the cliche would be when both of them were born, <laughs> which I think was right because you just think, okay, both of them were born. And many other moments when you know, I went to the graduation for my son with my son, Ryan, who's autistic, when he achieves anything, he passed his theory driving test a few months ago. So anything I think for them that they do that's significant in their life, it's the, the, the joy that I have as a parent. But I think for me, every moment, even the, the bad times really that you go through, I think for me is is a positive because there's always some form of learning within that. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Um, I'm we are so grateful thank you so so much well that's a wrap on season two of black bella presents the survival guide we'd love to know what you think about everything so let us know on social media please rate and review us on apple podcasts and share the podcast with friends of course and stay tuned for a couple of bonus episodes coming your way soon 
This has been a Black Ballad production and the theme tune for this podcast is by Darrell Banks. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.